Hello, you're listening to Drawn to the Flame, a podcast for fans of Arkham Horror, the card game. I'm your host, Frank, and today I'm joined by... It's me, Peter. Hello, Frank. Hi, Peter. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. It's a, it's the, the one time in the year I get to say this. <laughs> today, I'm joined by... It's me, Matt. Hello, Matt. Hi, Matt. Hi. <laughs> Welcome. It's the highlight of, highlight of my podcasting year when I get to say that. <laughs> You're I'm not going to say anything for the rest of the episode, yep, Peter. Done. Just <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. it. And that's the episode. <laughs> great, great. So we might also have not one but two cats on the line. Yes, I believe I'm the true. odd one out here to not have a cat on my lap. We can ask them questions about all fire. Exactly. Yeah, they can give us the the spoilers for the next cycle. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, Matt, we're delighted that you can join us. For listeners who are new to the cast, in the past we've invited you on and uh, spoken to you at the end of a cycle. So this is nominally a chat about The Circle Undone, which Mm -hmm. has been incredible, by the way. I'll just get that in there right now. But we'll probably also range over other topics as well. We should probably outline as well, there's a couple of things you're not allowed to talk about. Mm Mm-hmm. Generally not allowed to talk about, you know, future products, uh, unreleased products, unannounced products, anything like that. And uh, sometimes they they want us to keep certain elements of the design process under wraps as well. So if I can't answer a question, then yeah, sorry. (laughs) It's quite all right. We've come to understand that there are rules. So yeah, that's good. Cool. Well, let's kick things off with a slightly broader question. In the past, we've asked you about the state of the game when we check in with you, Mm -hmm. but we want to also check in with the state of the developer. You've (laughs) done four cycles now, and there's probably at least a couple more in development. How are you feeling about Arkham? I feel like Arkham is stronger than ever, and I I feel like I'm... I still have so many different stories, like, left in me, and so many different cards that that can be designed. I Honestly, I feel like I could keep designing for this game for forever. (laughs) That's good to hear. That's really good. (laughs) I mean, no guarantees, but, you know. (laughs) Is it something you're kind of keeping an eye on, your internal creativity and and just sort of how you're doing with the game? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, in in the past, we've had games where the designers rotate, you know. Uh, In fact, Mm. that's pretty common in in most of our games. Um, Arkham has been rather unique in that, for the most part, I've been spearheading the uh, design process for the entirety of the game's life cycle. Mm-hmm. And we've, we have had some designers pop in and help from time to time. Uh, Brad Andreas helped with the uh, some of the initial standalone scenarios and with the blob that ate everything. Mm-hmm. Danny Schaefer helped out a little bit with the Circle Undone cycle. He's the lead developer for uh, Game of Thrones, a card game, and one okay, of the yeah. Keyforge developers as well. I now have uh, other designers helping, you know, on the projects that I'm working on right now. So, yeah, it's uh, it's it's been interesting. It's been, it's definitely been different. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we've been very lucky in a way to be enjoying a game that seems to have mostly come from one mind and been your baby that you've been driving forward. So, yeah, I just thought it would be good to check that you're still enjoying <laughs> that. And, oh, yeah. of course, yeah. It, it, it does definitely help when crafting like the, the narrative and the story. Yeah, absolutely. I can well imagine. And now the, the classic question, how's the state of the game? You know, the players, the discussions around it, the decks, mm-hmm. as far as you're concerned. I, I feel like 
uh, Arkham has reached a point where its its community is so tight knit that it, it's really stronger than it's ever been before. The diversity of the investigators and the how many scenarios there are to play now, and how I don't know, just the the community is so so kind and so welcoming that it's very easy game to pick up and get into. But there's also so much depth now after mm-hmm. what three years. So, yeah, it, the state of the game, I would say, is very, very good. <laughs> good. I mean, I'm nodding heartily here because my experiences of the community are probably similar. Mm-hmm. And and wanting to encourage the community as a whole to be that way. And it's, uh, you know, obviously I don't get much say in that, but feeling like, yes, this is good. Let's keep building a nice community that we all want to be a part of. Yeah, because that's always one of the challenges with a game like this, right, is making sure that the the barrier to entry is still low enough that people can, after three, four years, hop in with uh, just a couple purchases and feel like they're part of the community and they're mm, not like missing yeah. out, you know? It's it's always been not necessarily a weak point, maybe a weak point, I don't know, of, of the LCG format is that mm-hmm. if you come to it late, there's this intimidating wall of products you need to own in order yeah. to be able to, if you, if especially with the competitive games, but I guess yeah. with something like Arkham, you know, you can always just start with the most recent cycle, yeah, uh, and and then get into it. I, I guess one thing that's interesting, not Arkham related, is we've seen the Marvel LCG, mm-hmm. and I think the whatever the equivalent of the Mythos packs <laughs> for for, <laughs> uh, for that are, it's it's a deck in a box, isn't it? Yeah, that's uh, something that we're trying with Marvel that it really fits the the model for that particular game where every pack is a hero. So it's not just like, oh, this is, you know, chapter two of the whatever story. It's this is the Captain America pack. And if you buy this, you'll have Captain America and an entire starter deck for Captain America in one place. So it's it's a great, you know, kicking off point. And it works perfectly for Marvel because it's like, they're these iconic characters that people are you really in love with, right? And even if you're not a card game player, if you see Captain America and you're a big Captain America fan, you might pick it up and then you have a perfect starting place for, for your collection, you know? Yeah, it, it's worked really well in Keyforge. I know some people who don't necessarily have the time to buy deeply into, a, into another LCG mm-hmm. will just grab a Keyforge deck. And they'd be like, well, I can play Keyforge now, I've got a deck, and yeah, if yeah. I ever want another one in the future, I can just go buy another one. Yeah, that's one of the best things about Keyforge, too. Also, very, 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 very small uh, barrier to entry with that game. Are you keeping an eye on barrier for entry, then, for Arkham? Is that something that's in mind when you go about introducing a new deluxe or that kind of thing? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's it definitely it's like a tug-of-war, right? Because a new deluxe has to, has to be new enough that uh, veteran players are excited to see it. Like, it's got to have some new stuff that they've never seen before. But it also has to be something that you could pick up a core and this deluxe and dive right in and be part of the, the community as it's growing instead of necessarily having to go back and, and buy Dunwich. Although I still think that that's, you know, a great entry point for a new player. But if you want to stay engaged with the community, that with the packs that are currently being released, I want you to be able to do that, you know? Mm, yeah, I think that's important too. It's striking that you mentioned veteran players 
because one of the things we've seen during the circle undone cycle is the introduction of the taboo list mm -hmm. and i at the time i sent you a few questions and I, I wonder if i could press you on a couple of those now yeah so can you share sort of broadly some of your thinking behind it and in particular the process by which it gets created behind mm -hmm. the scenes how much of that are you allowed to share well i think what i can say is this is something that i kind of been thinking about for a long time and it was it's almost an experiment uh right like i wasn't really sure how it would shake up at first mm -hmm. to me the taboo list sort of came from my experience with co-op games in general and we i mean arkham is still only the second co-op lcg we've ever made uh so it there's at ffg there's sort of this uh this unspoken rule that you don't you don't errata cards willy-nilly you, you know errata is a big deal Mm -hmm. You really need to reserve that for when uh, it really needs to happen. There's a card that's just non-functional, or it's so unclear that it would be easier to just, you know, errata the card than, than to explain around it. And for me, it didn't feel right to use errata to fix balance issues in a game like this. Like, in, in mm -hmm. a competitive game, that can be really, really important. But in a cooperative game, it, it's sort of this, like unspoken rule again uh with players that like if if there's a card that's too strong you kind of you know you either use it and you have fun anyway or you don't use it because you feel like it's too strong right mm -hmm. and that's something yeah, that just happens yeah. in, in card games all the time so i wanted to come up with a way to sort of please everyone because i'm a people pleaser and that's what that i do <laughs> um so the taboo list is sort of that it's kind of my way of hoping to have my cake and eat it too to like create balance adjustments or balance errata or almost like a restricted list in other card games, but in a way that is optional and you can opt in or choose to ignore it completely because, again, it's a co-op game and I want you to play the way that you want to play. Mm. And that's I'm, kind of I'm glad you from. mentioned that it was optional because mm -hmm. I think that was something that was really well signposted when it was announced. It wasn't a this is the proper way to play, right. catch up. How much are future scenarios and player cards designed with the taboo list in mind, if at all? Uh, I tell I I got that question pretty quickly after the taboo list came out by my playtesters. Like, you know, should we be playing with the taboo list or should we not be? And uh, I basically told them the same thing that I told players. If if you want to play test with the taboo list, go for it. If you want to play test without it, go for it. Just let me know mm -hmm. which one you're doing when you you know provide your feedback and that will obviously shift you know my responses to uh, the playtesters but uh, for the most part I, I think it's kind of split evenly um, I have okay I certainly have some groups that are adhering to it and some groups that aren't so yeah and how often do you foresee returning to the list updating it I would like to update it between each campaign that's not always going to be possible because just due to the time frame and uh, how much work goes into that sort of thing. But um, it would be nice to update it between campaigns so that you're not making adjustments on the fly in the middle of a campaign to all of your decks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So, so do you think it's had... I don't know whether you keep up on, inverted commas, meta decks, Matt, mm -hmm. browsing the front page of, of deck building websites. But mm -hmm. have you seen it having an effect on the kind of decks people are putting together? And is that the kind of is it having the kind of effect you wanted it to? I can't say 
one way or the other if it's having an effect on the decks that people are building, but it's definitely having the effect that I wanted in terms of uh, sparking conversation and having people uh, start to consider cards uh, aside from maybe these big powerhouse cards that we've seen over and over again in decks. So it's, it's definitely accomplishing the goal that I set out for it. I was definitely very conservative in my first picks for the Taboo list because I wasn't sure how it was going to play out and I wasn't sure what the reaction was going to be. And that's not to say that I'm going to go ham the next time I look at it. It's probably going to be very minor adjustments from here on out. But I think it's doing what it's intended to do, which is get people thinking about decks in a new way and get people thinking about cards that they might not have considered uh, as much before. Yeah, just the one example to go from a conversation about why haven't you included Machete mm. to go to evolve to a conversation around what weapons do I want to run in Guardian because I'm you know implied because I'm playing Taboo so Machete's out. Right. I think that's been really help healthy for encouraging people to explore the card pool, the options available. Like that that seems to have had a really good impact. Yeah, definitely, and that's that's always been the case in um in card in competitive card games too is that. The restricted lists in, in other card games, it's not meant to necessarily just stop you from playing certain cards. It's meant to get you playing other cards that are actually a lot of fun, but it's tough to uh, consider in an environment where there's another card that does the same thing, but maybe a little bit better, right? Yeah. And that's that tension between power and fun... I think also, you know, Arkham can be a difficult game, so you can have people saying, but I need to play the best cards. Right, exactly. And it's exactly. Quite nice to add either an incentive not to do that or a, a sort of minor optional rule set that allows that to happen. You, you've, you say people say that, Frank, but I said that. <laughs> I think that we talked about this. <laughs> that, you know, part of the reason I enjoy Arkham, it's, it's a deck-building challenge as well. So I want to use the tools I've got at my disposal in order to best solve the puzzle of, of the game. And until Matt comes along and says, actually, this card, it costs you more experience, I'm going to keep using the, the good cards <laughs> in my decks. Mm. Unless I'm yeah. building something particularly thematic. So I I, I was pretty uh, germane about the whole thing. I was pretty happy to see some of these cards, which I felt <laughs> almost obliged to include in my decks. Uh, there was a cost to do it. I think I don't know whether it was on was it on our podcast, Frank. I had that quote from a a developer about balance. Mm, yeah, yeah, it was on him. Yeah, about how if you think twice about a card in terms of the cost, that's balance working as intended. Mm. Yeah, uh, because anything is... that feels like a steal probably is a steal. Exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Also, just want to say that like if you if you don't want to use the taboo list or if you are one of those players who feels like oh i need these cards in order to um that's totally fine like uh, th you're not playing the game wrong <laughs> there's nothing wrong with doing that um play the way that you want to play that's that's what we want you to do my rule of thumb when talking to people is that if you've heard of the taboo list you should probably be using it because you, you're at a stage where... Because <laughs> you're a, a more experienced player. Yeah, you, you know, you've looked at the FAQ and you're ready to start thinking about that kind of stuff. But that's that's just my rule of thumb. It's <laughs> mm, a good rule of thumb, I think. So let's move into the player cards from the Circle Undone. Uh, this is the, the your starter question. Are there any player <laughs> cards that you're particularly proud of in this cycle and why? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm it, overall, the player cards in this cycle, I'm pretty happy with all of them. I'm really happy with how the tarot cards turned out. Mm -hmm. 
I'm also really happy with the higher level cards in this cycle, actually. That's something that is really tough to, um, to, to playtest because just the very nature of higher level cards is that you see them less often because you're not using them until the end of a campaign. And that means that yeah. they inherently get less attention in playtesting. So it's hard to really get them exactly right, you know, balance wise. Um, but I think the higher level cards in this cycle turn out really good. I'm really happy with like Glimpse the Unthinkable, Agency Backup, the Mark 1 grenades are really fun. Deny mm -hmm. Existence level yeah. 5 is probably my favorite card in the entire cycle. Yeah, they all they all turned out just the way that I envisioned them, I think. Oh, uh, Diana Esperance. Yeah, she's a lot of fun she's to use. She's great fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah great fun. <laughs> are there any cards that you feel are particularly important to the game, sort of for the game's future? There's a... Maybe not for the game's future as a whole, but there's a couple cards in particular that um, are going to be for sure staples in the next cycle because they're sort of lead-ins to those investigators. Like Mr. Rook is obviously very good with Mandy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, slight spoilers for Dream Eaters investigators if uh, if that is something that, uh, you know... We've mentioned all of them on the cast already. Okay, yeah, okay. So, yeah. If it's officially revealed, people, uh, people uh, don't know what the deal is. Cool. <laughs> What else? Uh, Diana Esperance is going to uh, be, I think, um, a pretty powerful mystic ally in the future. I mean, there's there's never going to be a deficit of spell events, but that's something that I uh, want to continue to focus on in the future. Yeah, and, and I think Luke works well with spell events. What, yes, right? yes, exactly. Yeah. Luke, is, Luke is all about events, so I could definitely see there being uh, some powerful mystic uh, event-heavy decks in the future whether it's Luke or Agnes, and Diana definitely helps a lot with that. Yeah, and uh, of course, all of the rogue cards that, you know, you, you want to have, like, a lot of money in your resource pool. Mm -hmm. Tony is not Preston, for sure, but Tony does end up with a lot of money after he's, you know, accumulated his various bounties, so they work pretty well with him as well. Mm, yeah. We could we could jump into Preston a little bit right now, actually. Sure. Because he, he's... For my blind through of the circle and done, I use Preston, mm -hmm. and was just so fascinated by how he works and, and the <laughs> flow of his deck. Uh, it, it's a it's a really unique experience to be. So the tempo works totally differently with him. I think all but one or two cards he can play in a single turn. Uh, yeah. You're not looking at the when you look at the cost curve of the deck, you're thinking like he can do one or two things a turn. You can you can ace one or two tests. He can play a card. Uh, but that's generally it for the turn, unless he's playing mm. a lot of cheap cards. So yeah, it, can you talk, tell us anything about how you ended up with Preston working like he did? He went through several different iterations in playtesting, and I can't talk about what those different versions were, but I really like where we landed with him, because as a rogue survivor, he needed to sort of bridge the gap between those two uh, strategies, like the low cost, cost curve and the high cost curve, which is interesting. So... You know, right from the beginning, I wanted him to be a character who dealt with resources and costs, you know, mm -hmm. uh, as a whole. And what, what ended up being very interesting about the rogue survivor, like, hybrid, uh, when talking about, like, resources, like, Wendy's also a rogue survivor hybrid, but she's all about, really, evasion more than anything else, which is a common thread bet between the two. But for Preston, we kind of identified two major versions of Preston throughout playtesting. The the money bags Preston, who focuses on having uh, lots and lots of resources in his resource pool, and the more survivory Preston, who just uses 
all of the resources from his inheritance to pay for cards and then keeps his resource pool light or empty because he doesn't need resources, you know, to continue yeah. to play cards. Incidentally, that's the way I went with Preston because it was the most yeah. fun just juggling the money around every turn <laughs> trying to figure out what you're going to do. <laughs> the the uh, playtesters called that uh, Dark Preston. Dark Preston. <laughs> <laughs> Which made me think of like... like Shadow the Hedgehog or something. <laughs> He's got a goatee. Yeah, well. yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Preston's evil twin. <laughs> well, and I mean, he's very non-evil, isn't he? Because he can't take any illicit cards. Right. No, he, he doesn't like to break the law. He hires other people to do that for him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so the other thing I found interesting, so although I did play as, as, a, as Dark Preston, uh, going through Circle Undone and having really good fun juggling when you go broke. The Lodge Debts is such an exciting card to, into mm. that mix because you, you've got to think about the flow. If, you, if you're going broke, paying off your debts to the Lodge is a three-turn investment of time Right. Uh, when you're not necessarily able to use some of your cards like your Fire Axe or your Dark Horse. But what I did like is that the 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 kind of the rich versions of the cards uh, they fit into a build. Like people might say, "Oh, I finished the scenario with with twenty resources. It was great." <laughs> but if you spent all that time getting the resources, was it worth it? You know, what did you use that time you spent getting the money for? But now we've got well connected, right. so that's a card which means you can just be rich, and yeah. you know yeah. that helps you win. And it it's sort of an indirect buff to uh, Jenny as well. Because Absolutely. her playstyle has always involved hoarding lots of money as well, um, just naturally from her ability. Mm, yeah, I really enjoyed revisiting other rogues and looking at, well, can I put cunning and well-connected and money talks into this rogue? Right. And would that work? Or into, you know, people have talked before about making Seth insanely rich as well. <laughs> and then suddenly you're like, oh, and okay, I can paint money talks and that can be... <laughs> you know, my way of getting around certain tests or whatever I'm using that for. Yeah, what, one of my favorite things to do when designing player cards in a cycle is uh, using those player cards to revisit past investigators as well. And sometimes it's it's unintentional, and sometimes it's, it's totally, like, you know, the point of a card is to buff uh, a previous investigator, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We mentioned when we did our roundup episode that a lot of the secret cards looked this might have been my imagination in my interpretation but they look like they fit quite well in daisy mm. yeah th there there was a, sort of a lack of new tomes for daisy for the first couple cycles mainly because we uh, you know we were playtesting stuff so early that we weren't sure how many tomes she would need in the card pool to to be strong but also what i'd like to do in the future is to create seekers that that use tomes the same tomes that t that daisy has but you know differently right like uh take mandy for example she has access to old book of lore same as daisy and they can both use old book of lore and they both get different benefits for using it mandy can search mm -hmm. deeper and search more cards daisy can search for free that's sort of the thing that i'd, I'd like you know more seekers to be running around with tomes maybe not like joe diamond or whatever and just using them for different reasons like other world other world codex is another good example of that that's a uh, well that's a future card that uh, has been spoiled but in case you're one of the esoteric order of street date sort of viewers uh <laughs> i won't say what it does but you get the idea yeah I, especially i thought that with old book of law 
in that mm-hmm. it's, it, there's such a gulf between what what it's like in other investigators and what it's like in Daisy. Uh, right. So it's really good to see Mandy show up, who, who can use it well. I always feel a bit bad when someone's playing with corset maybe, and they've got Roland, and they draw whole book of law, and <laughs> you, you say, well, you know, play it uh, and use it, but it's really meant for the for the other seeker, not for Roland. Yeah, yeah. There's also like there's the occult lexicon that's a tome, but it doesn't have an action ability on it, so it's not like a daisy tome per se. So I, I'm hoping that, because, uh, you know, Seekers are always going to want to have books. That's like a theme in Seekers. And I don't want every book to come out to be like, oh, it's a daisy card, you know, by default. And yeah. many of them will be, but yeah. <laughs> but but it's, it's lovely to see the other card that's nice to see. I was sort of straying into Dream Eater's chat here, but, but Research Librarian is suddenly mm. going to become a much more tasty card once we get Mandy as well. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So... Not just did we have a, a rogue who didn't have access to illicit, we also had a one willpower mystic in this <laughs> box. We had a guardian without access to weapons above level zero. We had a, a seeker who was kind of a combat seeker. And yeah, I suppose I wondered, did you intend when you started putting together Circle Undone to have these freaks and misfits <laughs> in the deluxe that's peter's phrase <laughs> did, um, I, did i write that <laughs> yeah, you wrote that. Yeah, yeah or is that a plan for the future as well in that you want to sort of shake up the guardian does the fighting the seeker does the cluing in a deluxe uh it kind of just played out that way in a happy accident sort of way like carolyn was planned for this box so joe diamond was almost sort of a reaction to carolyn like all right if if the guardian in this box isn't going to be the one doing the fighting, then who is? And I had already had this plan for Joe Diamond to be a, a sort of a fighty seeker uh, in the mm-hmm. same vein as Roland, uh, who's like a cluey guardian. So it just sort of played out that way. And then Diana was almost designed in a vacuum with the, the one willpower thing being part of her design from the get-go. And mm-hmm. Preston's non-illicit thing was... Uh, like none of it was designed with this core philosophy of like this is going to be the box where all the you know weird uh, investigators go but it did sort of play out that way with maybe the exception of Rita yeah my internal image of you sort of tearing up the rule book happen in the office (laughs) no not not really but you know they're all definitely outliers right like I there's it's not going to be this thing where seekers are now the combat faction that is (laughs) by far not the case um Mm. so i i wouldn't worry about that uh but yeah it kind of worked out nicely in that regard that like you know at the end of the day a lot of the investigators in the box did have this sort of theme uh of of shaking things up and being a little weird and to me that that ended up just being a side benefit of like oh cool okay yeah that worked out (laughs) peter and i have actually gone back and forth on this as well because in a way this is a really great first purchase after your corset mm. because it really turns on on its head some of the expectations you might have from the corset so you'd end up with joe and roland as you mentioned right really complement each other quite nicely yep. joland or you joe, is, that, is that a thing <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know yeah. fighting over all the same cards yeah, yeah. and it, that sort of is a nice way to introduce players to how different investigators can be within the same faction mm-hmm. you know uh, agnes and diana behave very differently obviously but both might fill the same role as a kind of fighty mystic sure there almost feels like some there's some real uh, uh core 
Kulapai cards in this expansion. Like with Preston, it feels like you've fleshed out a little bit in that deluxe box, the Money Talks theme. So mm-hmm. you've got well connected, and you've got cunning, and you've got um, money talks all in the same the same box. Yeah. So yeah, it always felt like it was a nice one to move on to after the corset. Yeah, I agree with that. I think um, a lot of the we're finally getting to the part the point in uh, Arkham's life cycle where a lot of the core themes of each class has has been fully explored. Well, not fully explored, but you know we've finally visited a lot of those core themes. Um, because the card pool in Arkham grows slower slower than um, in in some games because you've got so much of the deck in every pack is you know for the scenario. So it, you know a card like Money Talks or Well Connected, uh, like we're finally hitting on those rogue themes that some of those rogue themes that we outlined before the game ever came out. Me and Nate. <laughs> so it's it's cool to see that finally come to fruition. I think. Yeah, I think it's been exciting as a player as well to see those things rounded out. Like, Another Day, Another Dollar, to me, feels like a kind of core part of a rogue's identity. Mm-hmm. And I can't believe we've only had it for a couple <laughs> of hacks now. Like, it seems such a no-brainer. So, yeah, yeah. So, yeah no, it's I, really I, nice to have that back. I think that's something that's going to continue, too. Like, I, I don't think it's necessarily done. There's definitely some cards in the, in the Dream Eaters cycle that when players open the pack i think they'll have that same reaction of like oh wow okay this card <laughs> like i've wanted a card like this for ages you know yeah yeah didn't even realize i, I wanted it yes yeah yeah um, you mentioned tarot earlier mm-hmm. tarot obviously is one of the themes of the cycle and you you're able with this game to hit a player on multiple fronts with a theme mm. so you have the agendas with that incredible tarot art that you had throughout this cycle but then you've also got story text referencing tarot readings and there are then tarot player cards Mm -hmm. do you feel that tarot is now done is that you're happy to put a bow on it and leave it or is there more you want to explore with tarot where are you at with it uh i'm not going to say it's definitely done because who knows what the future will hold never say never yeah never say never that's for sure but uh, I, as far as, like, overarching themes, yeah, I think the Circle Undone is, uh, like you said, tarot-focused, or t- tarot was, like, a big integral part of the story in the Circle Undone, mm-hmm. and I don't see that being the case in any future cycle, uh, in the same way that, you know, the jungle was a fundamental aspect of uh, the Forgotten Age, and I probably don't see us returning to that anytime soon. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. But who knows? Uh, we might We might get to see more tarot cards in the future. Um, like I said, never say never. It's when the the fortune teller investigator comes, <laughs> right? Is it uh, who's who is it? I keep joking, Frank. Is it Gloria, the the psychic? Jacqueline Fine. Oh, Jacqueline Fine. Yeah. Well, Gloria's, they're, they're yeah. both Gloria's they're both author. sort of clairvoyant. Gloria is is um is the novelist, the author. Yeah. Yeah. And she sees uh, she sees the future in her in her dreams and then writes about it. And then Jacqueline is the psychic. Sweet Jackie. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite Eldritch Horror investigator. She's oh yeah, so good. Yeah, nice. yeah, yeah. She's just she's just so good. You know, I've I've talked about this on the cast many a time. So yeah, uh, like I think Sean from Mythos Buster, his feelings about Diana is my feelings. About Diana. <laughs> yeah, that's the equivalent level we're on. Yeah. All right, I'll I'll have to make sure she's good. Yeah, just no for pressure. You. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and what about so Tarot wasn't the only 
a new thing you gave us with Circle Undone. What about multi-class cards as well? Mm. As an idea, they're fairly straightforward. They belong to two different factions, but it seemed to cause quite a lot of confusion when they came out, right. rather when they were announced and then when <laughs> they came out. What did you understand was going on there with all the confusion? Sure. Yeah, I, I think it's one of those things that uh, it just sounds a lot simpler on paper than in practice. And uh, it was really the deck building was the thing that, that was making it difficult. Um, but my idea for the multi-class cards was always they're both classes. You know, the answer to every question is it's, it's both, right? Like, oh, is this a is this a rogue card or a survivor card? It's both. And that answers pretty much any question that could come up during gameplay. But the deck building proved a bit trickier than that, right? Like, if I'm... Mm -hmm. Obviously, if I'm Wendy and I have access to rogue cards, I have access to a card that is both rogue and guardian because it is a rogue card. But it gets trickier when you have limited access. Like, if I only have five rogue cards, does it count as one? Or if I only have five, let's say, seeker or mystic cards, and it's both a seeker and a mystic card, does it count twice? Like, um, mm -hmm. And... So my intuitive answer to that, what I thought was the most intuitive answer, didn't turn out to be the most intuitive answer um, okay. for the rest of the player base, which is something that happens because obviously our player base is much much larger than our than than you know our playtest base or the development office for FFG, right? So mm, yeah, there's only so much I can anticipate, and in this case, uh, I definitely went down a route that uh, I think players didn't quite get at first uh especially mostly it was fine except for like the um like the the off class like dunwich investigators yeah in my mind the easiest way to resolve that question was if you're just going through your deck counting icons right you mm -hmm. you would go through your deck and count every icon that wasn't your class you know if you're like ashcan pete you would just go through your deck and count every icon that's not a survivor icon on those cards, and if it totals five or less, you're good. Um, that was my that was kind of how I thought of it. But I think in the long run, the the rule set that we ended up with is a lot cleaner and a lot simpler. And um, also now have learned the lesson that when we post a, a spoiler for something like that, maybe we should post the rules too. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's yeah. always that appetite for the rules, aren't there? When those things come up. I think I think what's admirable here is that you like did do an about face and and change it and use the tools available to you to make that change that seemed mm -hmm. positive to my mind and it did seem a lot clearer the second version right. so that that was good i i it took me a long time to get my head around multiclass cards as a as a concept i'm still not too sure about them every so often i send you a message peter don't i say <laughs> so is it is it this then so now i've started to think of them as they're like they're Less universal than a neutral card. Right. But so they can be more powerful than a neutral card because they don't have access everywhere. But because they're two factions, they're maybe a little bit below the power of just being in an individual faction. Right. That's exactly it. They're, they're somewhere in between a normal ze level zero class card and a neutral card. They, yeah. they have access. A, a lot of investigators have access to them, but not everybody. And I imagine you want to do more in the future. Um, I would like to do more in the future, definitely. I don't know when. It was sort of an experiment at first. Like, mm -hmm. 
like should like can we do this all right let's try it <laughs> yeah um, and they eat up a lot of card slots if you do the upgraded version yeah yeah that's the yeah. that's the that was the tough part like i would have done more in this cycle if it weren't for the fact that they take up so much space so i only wanted to do a handful for that reason that's why there's only mm -hmm. five so if i ever do more in the future it'll probably be in the same vein where it's uh, a handful of cards and then maybe some leveled up versions but i i might not do it the same way we'll see yeah I think if, if we were going to, uh, we mentioned this in our, in our review cast, and if we were going to be, if we were going to be critical, Matt, and please don't hang on. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we got a taste of a few different types of new mechanic in player cards in this cycle. So mm -hmm. we got the tower cards, we got the, the multi-class cards, we got a little bit of bonded in that last pack. Mm -hmm. um, but as you say, there's, there's only so many player cards, right? Uh, you've, slots you've got in a cycle. And for Arkham, as opposed to the LCGs, even that that's squeezed. Uh, so it's hard to, to dive too deeply into any one of those with the amount of space you've got. Yeah. Should we talk about something else? Something happy? <laughs> no, no, you're good. I just, uh, yeah. I was like, yeah, you're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess, so some of them have really, uh, after a bit of play, have, have been stars, right, of the multi-class cards? Mm -hmm. yeah, oh yeah, sure. Yeah. So everyone loves en Enchanted Blade. It's really good. Enchanted Blade is yeah. uh, is gonna definitely see a lot of use. Grizzly Totem is really good. I was gonna say I, I was looking at Patrice with her, uh, her her ability. She just wants to be pitching those cards in the tests all turn. Mm -hmm. So potentially Grizzly Totem finds a really nice home in her. Yeah, Grizzly Totem is a cool card because there's definitely seekers that that like it and there's definitely survivors that like it so it, it fit um it, that was one of the experiments that i think fit really well where like the the challenge with these cards was coming up with an effect that both of those classes cared about you know what i mean yeah yeah, yeah. and that was one that that i think turned out really really well yeah and it, the thompson is another great example where it's expensive for guardians but it's giving you a good boost and lots of ammo mm -hmm. so they probably like it and then rogues maybe don't care as much about the expense, but mm -hmm. like the boost and the ammo. So like either side, you can see them going, oh yeah, this really fits for my combat role. Yeah, I absolutely. Like we're we're going to talk, we're going to move on and talk about the campaign itself now. But just before we do, uh, Peter has some rapid fire questions for you about <laughs> particular cards. Oh, I've got right. a couple questions. <laughs> rapid fire. Well, I, I guess <laughs> there's there's been a few cards in the cycle people have been a bit worried about in terms of power level. Mm-hmm. There's a few that spring to mind. I know there's uh, a, a U-Catastrophe kind of combo where you can keep that going uh, mm -hmm. if you're using someone like Yorick uh, and you're constantly bringing that card back. Uh, people <laughs> have talked about Studious as well. But I guess we'll zero in on Drawing Thin, mm -hmm. which a lot of people have said uh, just enables ridiculous amounts of money or card draw in certain Survivor decks. Uh, is that something you think's an issue? Are you keeping an eye on it or are you happy that it enables a certain style of play, like a rich survivor play? Uh, it's definitely something that we have our eye on. I, I don't know if it's um, if it's really a huge problem just yet, but it's definitely something that we're keeping an eye on, both that and, and U-Catastrophe. Although U-Catastrophe, I think, even with the, the combo with Yorick, it's kind of, it can, it can be tough to pull off because you have to reveal a token that reduces your skill value to zero. Yeah. And um, depending on what you're doing, that's, you know, not always possible. Or I guess you could just continue to investigate well as Yorick because his intellect is so low. But I've still seen that combo get broken every now and then. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, 
as soon as you hit that plus one and it doesn't work. <laughs> it's always always recursion. It's always recursion. <laughs> right. And as for drawing thin, I, I just liked the um I really liked the fail to win archetype in Survivor and I wanted to give them ways to raise the difficulty of tests so that they could play cards like Against All Odds and Rise to the Occasion and stuff like that. That was like one of the one of the core reasons why the uh, drawing fin raises the difficulty of tests was to enable those sorts of combos. So I'm um, I'm happy that it exists for those for those reasons. And I you know I I don't like regret making it or anything like that. It's still uh, it's still accomplishing the goals that I set out for it. It's just maybe a smidge too good. That's all. Yeah, it's lovely theme as well. It's it's just so survivor. Right. Uh, it's survivor all over, isn't it? It's it's this idea of <laughs> well drawing thin making things harder, but uh, getting a bit of strength from the the risk of failure. Mm -hmm. It's strange, isn't it, to have a card, like the conversation around drawing thin has been that you chuck in a take heart, maybe you've got rabbit's foot in play, and you're getting these obscene amounts of resources or cards from failure, and yet that gets then packaged up as a bad thing, (laughs) which is quite (laughs) strange. It's like, but I'm a survivor, I shouldn't be able to do that much in one test. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny how maybe like people's innate card game senses, they feel like they're getting too much bang for their buck out of it. I guess the the, the issue would be, Frank, if, if we go back to look at some of the cards on the taboo list, they were cards that you had to think of a good reason not to include. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and maybe that's where Drawing Thin is, is falling into that, that bracket a bit. It's like, well, you know, I've got whatever other card, I've got my fire axe, so there's no reason not to take drawing thin. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to hear your thoughts, Thoughts, Matt. Sorry, uh, I, I, we, we don't want to be overly critical, but uh, <laughs> no, it's just no, interesting absolutely. hearing where, where you come from on it. Yeah, and, and you know, if it ever gets to that point where drawing thin is sort of an auto-include in Survivor decks, then maybe we'll see it show up on the taboo list. Um, but that's one of the great things about the taboo list, is if you're, if you're a player who doesn't think this card is uh, is too powerful and feel like you need those resources in that card, then by all means, you know, you can keep playing it. And if you feel like it's overpowered, then you can not play it. And that's the great thing about a co-op game, <laughs> right? Mm. It's not like you're going to a tournament playing against people and you just keep seeing this card. Yeah, and the, the dissonance only comes from, like, discussions at large in the community where someone goes, well your deck's all right, but you haven't included Drawing Thin. Sure. And then you have the player who goes, yeah, but, you know, I feel like every deck I build, I put that in. Like that, I can see where people get uncomfortable then. And it was the same conversations I was having about higher education. Mm -hmm. It's like, I feel a bit too good with higher education. (laughs) Tests pose no jeopardy for me because I'm just, you know, passing them all perfectly at at least with drawing thin there's sort of that that. caveat of you know you have to increase the difficulty of the test so you can you can say i don't want to do that (laughs) yeah i like my difficulty staying low thank you very much (laughs) absolutely yeah we had a situation in witching hour our preston was running drawing thin and he drew a centuries of secrets Mm. so he's going to discard cards for each point he failed by said yeah i'm definitely going to fail this test so he upped the difficulty to seven with drawing thin and then he drew the skull minus one for each point he failed by discard the top card (laughs) of the encounter deck so he'd failed by he failed by seven and had also then had to discard another seven for 
failing itself. So he drew discarded awesome. 14 cards from the encounter deck. And all of those, you know, when the encounter deck runs out, effects started firing. <laughs> and we, the three of us who were playing was like, oh, okay, there is a downside to drawing thin. <laughs> you just like, <laughs> milled the encounter deck in one test. Yeah, there's, there's some tests that are safe to use drawing thin on. And there are some that you definitely don't want to, no matter yeah, how good we the thought, We are. thought that was a safe test, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, no, really good. Cool. Well, I, I I mentioned Witching Hour there, but I've I've really jumped the gun a little bit because <laughs> that's not where the Circle Undone campaign began. It began with this fantastic prologue. Can you talk to us a little bit more about the campaign and particularly why did you throw us in in medias res into an unwillable scenario with investigators <laughs> we didn't choose? Well, it definitely stemmed from the story that I was creating and also I, I really love that that like horror movie kind of trope where you start off with a character who's not the main character and you get to see them die to the horrible creature before mm-hmm, the main character is yeah. ever even on screen. And I kind of wanted to capture that same element here where like it, it's not as scary to see the monster as you the first time because you're an investigator and you're pretty you're pretty awesome you've got all kinds of cool tools and you're probably going to be fine but mm-hmm, if you're yeah. just you know these these four people who aren't even investigators like that's how low on the totem pole they are that's kind of terrifying you know, and you like you only have like four to seven cards in hand and you've got no deck and you're just you have no options and the scenario is telling you you're going to die <laughs> it's just like yeah that's a great way to introduce not just the the story, but to introduce the villain or the you know the the monster, the bit the big bad. Yeah, it works really well. It it was reminiscent to me of doing the gathering, of playing the gathering, mm-hmm. but it sort of signposted even more that this is going to be tough. And I think it's such a great introductory scenario as well, in a way for for newer players. If this is their first experience after the core set, mm-hmm. they get this prologue where. You don't have to worry about what's in your deck and have you drawn the right or the wrong card. You just get to dive in and experience some of the new mechanics in this safe slash terrifying way. <laughs> it, it, that definitely was nice. And you, I, I remember uh, first time we did it, I got absolutely shafted by a lot of the haunted effects. <laughs> so I was just at one location. Is it the Wraith that reappears if you trigger oh, yeah. the haunted yeah. effect? And I was in a room where I was taking horror and then I drew the car that triggers all the haunted effects and i was like this is an absolute mess i'm just being destroyed here by haunted uh but it didn't matter because that character was always going to die right i suppose that scenario introduces players to as you said i suppose not the antagonist but the big bad in the campaign what were your let's go a bit bigger picture what were your key aims with the circle undone in terms of maybe themes you wanted to hit Mm -hmm. or the story you wanted to tell the circle undone deals primarily with themes of fate and inevitability and accepting accepting things that we can't change like mortality and and that sort of thing so that's that's where a lot of the like the tarot comes in with uh the fate theme and the ghosts and the just the themes of death and that sort of thing uh it's all tied together in this concept of inevitability which also ties in with azathoth i'm I'm really happy with how this campaign's mood and themes played out because it all fit really nicely together i think hopefully i think so too yeah and absolutely it did and it felt it felt like a really cohesive whole Mm -hmm. and it also felt to me very engaging in a way that playing against azathoth 
hasn't felt in some other games. Mm-hmm. Azathoth's often been the the kind of starter big bad because when Azathoth wakes, everything's over. It's a very binary: you right. either win or you you lose. So having finding out that Azathoth was our great old one for this cycle had me really curious to how you would do that and how you would introduce that element of like, well, you can't beat Azathoth. If Azathoth <laughs> wakes, it's over. Yeah, and that that as an underlying the kind of the futility of effort is yeah it came across really well i thought yeah and not just like not just that but you know even even if you win quote unquote win uh there's still sort of this underlying hint that like it doesn't matter as a thought will eventually wake up just a matter of you know whether you're there <laughs> yeah it, there's definitely a it's a for now <laughs> after, right. after any situation where you win you know yeah. you know you've delayed the inevitable <laughs> But, you know, try not to think about it. <laughs> yeah. There's also that if you lose, if you lose, Azathoth wakes, goes back to sleep again, and it all begins all over again. Right. It's like, yeah. yeah. Wow, what a downer. Yeah, yeah, it is pretty depressing, but it's kind of, you know, that's the the universe that we live in, too, sadly. You know, they say the universe is expanding, and it will eventually go cold and then retract again. Mm-hmm. So Azathoth kind of uh, is a well, at least our our modern take on Azathoth is kind of a an analogy for all of that, you know. Mm, yeah, bleak. Yeah, wow. but but what's not bleak is the message contained within that, which is that um, there are things that you can change, and we can make the world the way that we want it to be. We we can still enact change within our lifetimes, you know. Hmm. Hmm. We get we get like a small sense of that in the witching hour, where there's a sense that the investigators shouldn't be there, mm-hmm. and against all the odds, they've managed to break what should have you know a circle that should have been sealed has been unsealed. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's even or I think, undone, a reference. if you will. Hey, <laughs> nice one there. Yeah, um, there's even a reference. Is it Annette who says it's the ones? From, maybe it's Erin. It's the ones from before. And Annette says, no, they're different. Right. There's this hint of maybe the circularity of time or something else. Well, actually, so that's supposed to be a hint that the Lodge was involved with the witches earlier. When Aaron first sees you, she thinks that you're members of the Lodge. And Annette is saying, no, no, I don't think it's them. It's it's some other group. It's just supposed to be this little hint that like, when you see the Lodge later and they're talking about the witches, you might be... You might be thinking, are these the ones that uh, that interfered with their ritual mm. earlier? You know. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I. So I. I really liked how we have this prologue where you feel like you're dumped in the middle of an unwillable situation, but then you double down on that, and in the witching hour, you dump <laughs> us in the woods, the rain pouring down. It feels very atmospheric. It obviously conjures up some memories of the devourer below as well, which is a pretty bleak scenario. <laughs> How do you go about making Arkham, the place, as nebulous as it is, a character in in this campaign and in the game? To me, it's all about the mood. Um, like Arkham is a very, uh, it's a very bleak city with some really dark history attached to it. Mm. So it's all about capturing that mood and, you know, making Arkham feel alive, but also in a way kind of kind of dead like there's something lost here you know yeah in bringing it to life you're actually bringing to life a, 
a dead place with an evil past. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and I don't know, just um, Arkham is so iconic of a location that I wanted to make sure that players felt like an attachment to it. Not that they wanted it to stay safe because Arkham is kind of like, you know, you, you, you maybe could care less if, uh, if that's the case. But the people within, yeah, I don't know. I, I grew up in, in New England myself, so... And I've visited a lot of the areas around where Arkham should be. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's it's almost kind of nostalgic writing about Arkham, like the, the fog that permeates through the town and the, the bells on the harbor and all that stuff. It's very, I don't know, it brings me back. <laughs> mm, yeah, I bet. And, I mean, and Lovecraft throughout his work has also, even in stories that aren't set in Arkham, he's made references to the gamble roofs or the the ancient secrets of Arkham and he kind of does throwaway references. I mean, even in some of the Dreamland stories, there's like a throwaway reference to Arkham. Mm-hmm. Like he's, he himself seemed to put a bit of an effort into like creating that image of Arkham as both sleepy and creepy. Yeah. Yeah. More than anything, Arkham is the through line through which all of Lovecraft's stories are connected, mm, you know, yeah. more, more so even than the ancient ones themselves. It's like Arkham is the one constant in almost all of his stories. In, in yeah. a way, the, the monsters defy classification, although as we've developed the mythos through the, the stories and the RPG, obviously they, they've firmed up. But for Lovecraft, I guess, the, a place is somewhere he could really accurately describe and communicate to the readers, so it felt more real. Mm-hmm. That's actually making me think now of one of his best descriptions of Arkham, which is in Dreams in the Witch House. Mm. And so maybe we should skip over at Death's Doorstep at this point and talk about the secret name. Sure. Where that's an example of a scenario that's really closely wedded to the source material or one of the inspirations, I'm assuming. Oh, yeah. I remember when we played this, I said to my play partner, let's go and check out the attic because in the story, (laughs) that's where it all kicked off. It was really fun in Secret Name for you to return to an old course set staple taking rats and making them <laughs> scary rats. Um, Small rats. <laughs> oh, man, it, it's, it was incredible what, what you did, Matt. I, I loved it so much. It's one of my oh, favorite things you. in this cycle where <laughs> in the past you draw the rats and you're like, oh, well, that's fine. You know, thank heavens I drew those. But here, like, <laughs> suddenly you've got a four fight, four health enemy and you're like, oh, no, more rats. What do we do? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, not rats. <laughs> yeah, We even had our group just... Uh, draw a rats and immediately exhaust their beat cop and be like yeah i'll just ping the rats and it was like yeah but it's got it's got three health <laughs> it's like wait what the cop won't kill it yeah it's like these are these are bigger rats are so bigger would you rats. say that is that a goal for you to try and remix some of these core set encounter sets is it would you say <clears> that you understand those sets better now now that we're four cycles in a little bit yeah i think more more so than anything uh not just the core set encounter sets but one of my favorite things about encounter sets is the idea that an encounter set that you're familiar with can take on a different uh sort of there can be a different take on it when you put it in a new scenario another example of this just in this box uh in that same very scenario is the the witchcraft set that has all of the cards that you can get rid of them if there's an exhausted witch at your location. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are very different be between witch. like yeah. the witching hour and the secret name because there's only one witch yeah. in the secret name, and it's straight up Nahab, and it's not easy to to pull that off. Yeah, 
So yeah. that yeah, that's one of my favorite things to do is to take an encounter set and to uh, introduce it in a new light and have you thinking like, oh, oh, this is totally different in this scenario. And um, rats is like the perfect example of that for this for this one as well. Yeah, another great example I'd say is Chilling Cold, sure. Chill and Obscure and Fog, which comes up in it Death's Doorstep. Yeah, yeah. Where you've just been describing all of the fog creeping in and it comes under doorways and through windows and everything seems to decay around you. And obviously in Death's Doorstep, <laughs> there's also spectral locations that are haunted. Yeah, so... yeah. So Obscuring Fog is way harder in that scenario than it normally would be. Yeah, yeah, it's a plus two shroud, but also some kind of penalty. That feels like a really lovely fit for that chilling cold set to suddenly tie into the story you're telling as well. Yeah, yeah, thank you. That That's also a really good example. I've always loved Obscuring Fog, as it feels like, and this is this is no insult, Matt, it's uh, like a <laughs> B-movie. B, B <laughs> yeah. It's like someone's gone overboard with the smoke machine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> I remember when we talked to you, I think about The Forgotten Age... You said that you quite wanted the the deluxe to stand on its own two feet as a like a almost a mini campaign. Mm-hmm. So you you maybe fight a boss in the second scenario or have some sense of that. Obviously, in Circle Undone, that works really nicely that we return to the scene of the prologue mm. in at Death's Doorstep, and you give investigators a chance to succeed where the prologue investigators failed. Or also a chance to die. Sure. <laughs> if you're not if you're not up to speed, am I on the right track that that was something you were you were thinking about with the sort of the structure of the deluxe here? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think it's a pretty classic. Uh, again, going back to the horror movie sort of trope, I think it's a pretty classic first act thing to do in a in a horror story is to have a horrible thing happen at a place where the the main character is not involved, and then have the main character show up at that place. And like after the fact, and what what it does is it creates this sort of tension where the reader knows more than the the investigator does or the the, the you know character does. They're like, oh goodness, what's going to happen here? Is is the same thing that happened to this previous person going to happen to to him or her? And so the whole time you you kind of have the hair on the back of your neck on end because you know that something's going to happen and the character doesn't. And uh, I kind of wanted to to have that same thing happen here. And it was cool because it, it allowed me to reuse all of those same locations, but also have like the non-spectral versions too. So now you get to see what it was like before all of that happened. Yeah. 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 It's um, I'm, I'm really happy with how that scenario turned out. I'm just remembering all the times I've played it and I'm at the non-spectral point and I'm desperately trying to remember what the spectral versions are like. <laughs> Maybe for a bit of positioning or thinking, oh, hell, what's the haunted effect here? Because if it's about to become spectral, I don't want to get haunted here. Or all of that kind of thing. <laughs> Which is what you have maybe as a viewer of a horror film where you're going, but don't go into that room. That room's <laughs> where the nasty thing happened. And then the room is fine. Yeah, absolutely. As the, as the viewer, you can hear the music starting to, to increase. Oh, so yeah, you're yeah, like, yeah. Well, something's going to happen, but the character doesn't know that. So this is also where you add uh, at Death's Doorstep the first, I suppose, major branch for players to decide whether or not they want to side with the Lodge. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about how you communicated the good and bad qualities of the Lodge to players? And I was really aware of my own conditioning to be anti-anything with silver twilight in the name like how much was that just just before you answer uh matt uh, can i just explain what happened when i did this which is that my friend and i both totally missed that a name of it could be to rescue the lodge members 
I just assumed they'd be the bad guys, and we were trying to manoeuvre ourselves so that the ghosts killed the lodge members to make things easier for us. Yep. Uh, and we we got out, and then someone said, you've let everyone die. And we were like, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't realise we weren't supposed to. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I mean, whether or not you're supposed to is up to you, right? Like, yeah. I don't think you played it wrong. I think you just played it in a way that would tick off lodge members and was highly beneficial for you. <laughs> it certainly was. Yeah, we strolled out there, no problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> over the, over yeah. the corpses of uh, a load of uh, lodge members. <laughs> You know, one of the cool things about Arkham, uh, about its sort of base design, is the idea that some scenarios don't have like a binary win condition, or like you just win or you lose. Um, some scenarios could have like sort of bonus objectives that you want to complete that uh, mm-hmm. that might benefit you in the end, but also might be a risk to take. And we're always trying to find new ways to do that. And so for this scenario, it was kind of this idea that uh, the Lodge members, while obviously not 100% innocent by any means, are in trouble here, same as you. And you can go in and, and help them out. And if you do, there's a benefit to doing that, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy with how The Lodge and Carl Sanford in particular was characterized in this early introduction. Like, I think if you're, even if you're not familiar with The Lodge, if you're like a new player or you're new to the IP, you might kind of see him as this, sinister figure but you're not really sure whose side he's on or whether what he's doing is good or or bad and forcing you to make that choice is uh it's always fun when you're forced to make a choice early on that could affect things later in the in the campaign like in carcosa where you're making the decision after you leave the dinner party like that that sort of iconic choice is i think very good to have this early in a campaign like right after scenario two it provokes a lot of discussion then as well. Yeah, you don't, yeah. Particularly on a first play, you don't know the ramifications of it. It really encourages you to get into character and role play or things like that. Yeah. I remember reading out about Sanford and his bodyguards and there's someone who goes into the house to check if Joseph Meiger's not there, who like strides in like a knight. Mm-hmm. And that sense for me of Sanford as a figure of power and he has his own entourage and it's you sort of think like I don't want to mess with this guy. He's pretty. He's like he's a pretty serious customer, which I think is nice. Rather than it saying, "Do you want to mess with the lodge?" It's just you've you've managed to I think illustrate that without without just uh, rubbing our noses in it, which I really liked. Yeah, and and I also think that while Sanford is obviously very menacing as an individual, the the people around him are almost described in a in a in the opposite sense, where like. Like the the imagery of a knight, like you typically see a knight as someone who's noble and upholding justice Mm. and and good values. So when you see that he's surrounded by these people who are described like knights, you almost feel like, well, maybe he is on the side of good. You know, I'm I'm not quite sure. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe he's just a serious guy. Right. Menacing. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned non-binary win conditions. That leads us neatly onto wages of sin. (laughs) Yes, it does. And the tricky fourth scenario that seems to be a a challenge point for many players whether that's unspeakable oath or boundary beyond here we are with wages of sin um (laughs) i i wondered about this one about how much this was you just exploring that exploring the space around not having too many penalties for failure and letting players try out a non-binary win condition scenario without really punishing them if it all goes wrong Mm -hmm. 
because as far as I can tell, you know, if you get if you get one heretic or if you get three, there's there's a fairly small amount of difference. There's a, a, a doom penalty later in the campaign, but it's not mm-hmm. it's not crippling. Yeah, yeah. You also miss out on some experience points, but it's mostly of just course, about yeah. improving your kind of state of the campaign for later. Mm. You know, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about why you made Wages of Sin work in the way it, it does, and mm-hmm. yeah, why it's so yeah. hard? <laughs> uh, I, so, like a lot, a lot of times, the campaign repercussions or consequences is one of the one of the last things that we do. We'll usually have an idea for a scenario in a more self-contained, in, sort of in a vacuum, and mm. experiment with it a few times, create like new iterations of it, and then in the end tie everything together with some campaign elements or maybe sometimes we'll have a campaign thing developed ahead of time like uh, Yig's Fury was pretty pervasive all throughout the Forgotten Age cycle development. Mm. With this one it was kind of like it just turned out to be a pretty difficult scenario a pretty difficult couple scenarios actually and Mm, uh, so in the long run we decided let's keep the difficulty because you know it's sort of this uh, having difficulty spikes every now and then is is uh, is good is healthy but also let's make sure that it's not you know kicking players while they're down and you can get some rewards for doing well but in the end if you if you only get one heretic here in wages of sin that's actually you know you did pretty decent you, you got one heretic that's like the maybe the average you know that's my goal in solo get mm-hmm. one yeah and if i can get one i'll then take a view of the board state and see if i can get another yeah and every every scenario like that every non-binary win condition sort of scenario has a different a different scale right and it's you don't always know what that scale is going into it so it can be kind of tough and for the wages of sin it was kind of like if you don't do anything then all four of these heretics are going to be unleashed and that's obviously bad um Mm -hmm. so any any heretics that you manage to banish is is a victory you know yeah yeah Absolutely, and uh, and with the secret name, all you're really getting in that scenario is mementos, and the more that you can get, the better off your position will be later, mm-hmm. and it sort of scales with how further into the act deck you are. So if you only make it into act two, and then you die or whatever, like obviously that's yeah, not you ideal, can't but you still got a memento or two, so awesome, mm-hmm. like thumbs up, you know? Yeah, and it's one of those examples where. Um, experience is is directly tied to tied to what you've experienced in the scenario mm. if you've defeated brown jenkin at least once you get a, an xp for it and same with nahab if you've gone toe-to-toe with those creatures even th- even if you haven't killed them because they keep coming back <laughs> but if you've if you've managed to knock them down once or drive them away that seems to reward you for for bp yeah I wonder, um with wages of sin and i imagine this might be a question you can't answer but i'm going to ask anyway mm-hmm. The flipping of locations from non-spectral to spectral. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very specific to Wages of Sin as an idea, mm-hmm. but was that a, a broader design that you had in mind for spectral and non-spectral generally? Because it's a quite neat sort of merging of the two worlds. Yeah, I don't think it was. I'm trying to remember, actually, because I don't remember how early that started or if that was something that was... It, it might have been something where originally they were different locations like different actual card uh cards and it just turned out to be something that was easier to do to just flip them over you know what i mean Mm, yeah but uh yeah i'm not i'm not actually sure how early that came about in the design for that scenario 
I know it wasn't the case in it was never the case in Death's Doorstep because that scenario was designed to also be the prologue and mm-hmm. I wanted you yeah. to still have that feeling of exploring the building, you know what I mean? So you yeah. still had to have the yeah. revealed side and the unrevealed side. And uh no other scenario has the spectral theme as as like pervasive as in Wages of Sin, so you've gone to a graveyard. <laughs> yeah. <can> you expect? <laughs> Shall we move on, Peter? Yeah, let's we're coming up to my favourite one, so let's let's dive into that. Nice. So, for the greater good, Matt, I think <laughs> it's certainly my favourite one this campaign. I think Frank's mm. as well, and possibly one of my favourite scenarios overall. Wow. I just really, really enjoyed it. Awesome. There's a really good... I almost expect you to be in a cardboard box. It's that feeling of sneaking <laughs> around the lodge uh, in, in one, one branch. Is uh, is really good, but can you explain maybe some of the challenges of this? Feels like maybe one of the climaxes of the lodge anti lodge pathways, in mm-hmm. that it's drastically different down each of the paths. Uh, is it? Can you explain some of the challenges you had doing that? Yeah, uh, I mean it was definitely something where, like early on, we knew we wanted there to be this this split where some of the investigators were going or some of the players were going to join up with the lodge and some were not. And early on, I had this vision of the players, you know, entering. Obviously, like the Silver Twilight Lodge headquarters had to be a scenario or a location. Like that just made perfect sense. Mm. And so I kind of had this narrative split and I wasn't sure how to resolve it at first. So usually when that happens, that is a clear indication that the scenario should, the, the, the design of the scenario should account for it. Like, it would have been weird if we were members of the Lodge and we were still doing the sneaking around thing that the non-members were doing, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it would have been weird if the non-members just get to stroll in. Yeah, exactly. Like, well, why exactly. did I bother joining? Yeah, yeah. like usually when, when there's two paths that are so different from one another, that is a an indicator that I should just embrace that and have the scenario have two like completely different versions. Um, like another example of that is in... Uh, in the Forgotten Age, where depending on whether you've been sort of chums with Ishtaka or Alejandro, you get different encounter sets showing up in yeah. like the Boundary Beyond and that sort of thing. It's not quite the same, but like that same, it's that same sort of idea of like you have two different paths that you can take, you know? And Fa- Phantom of Truth yeah. as well is, a, is another great example. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Phantom of Truth for sure. Yeah. How do you keep it square in your head? when you're writing and designing a scenario like this, that there's two separate routes? Um, Do you have a big decision tree up on the wall? (laughs) Actually, with with Death's Doorstep, I did. It was actually kind of a a thing where, like, I started mapping out the resolutions in that scenario because there's a lot of them. And um, Mm, the other developers in the office were like, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) Because it was just this huge, like, web of things. With this one, it was actually, it wasn't that... It was actually pretty simple because it's really two completely self-contained paths that don't ever really cross. Mm-hmm. I mean, they both have to end up sort of in the same place where you're 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 after the same objective and you're interacting with the same people, but they just have different reactions to you. Uh, it's the kind of thing that would actually be relatively easy to do if this were a digital game, but since it's a physical game, it it's got some more you know moving parts. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the reasons I like this scenario is that it seems to 
respond really clearly to the path you've taken so far. Yeah. So like I love the fact that evasion gets this extra ability to get rid of doom if you're sneaking around the lodge. Yes, yeah. yeah. And that, that sort of works really well. And I also like the fact that you can parlay with the lodge near fights and things like that if you're pro-lodge. Like, you can go and talk to them and that has an effect. So I think that's one of the reasons it lands so well for me, that it feels like what I'm doing as a, an investigator ties really neatly to my position in the story. I really like it. Yeah, it, it was it was important to me that you, you can't, or you well you sort of can but you're not encouraged to just roll in and just like like take out everyone in the lodge do what peter did in <laughs> death store stuff right yeah yeah it did really land for me in terms of that feeling of sneaking i felt like i was playing uh, like thief or something like that nice yeah uh, especially thief. the the use of the keys as well it felt that felt very kind of culty you're trying to collect these you can imagine the key having the symbol on its uh, on the, the end of the key can't you <laughs> yeah definitely like the it's funny that you mentioned thief because that's like that was one of my favorite games growing up and the the sort of uh, open level design nature of that game coupled with the the sneaking around and finding hidden routes to different places uh i can see where you made that comparison yeah yeah I really like actually that you then reference the keys in the act text when you explain what they all are and how they work. Mm. Like that, that felt like a really nice further nod. It was one of those points that feels really immersive where it's like, ah, oh, that's what the skull was. It was this item, you know. Yeah, that's the kind of thing that uh, I would have loved to have been able to reference what they are like at the moment you pick them up. Like again, mm. if this were a video game or something, that's totally what I would have done. So this felt like a nice compromise. Yeah. 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 Makes makes sense. And it's just and it's a nice payoff because then in future when you play, you'll know that. But yeah. Before that you don't know. Yeah. I mean, some of what we've just asked as well about keeping how you keep in your head all the different parts, that really comes home to roost, doesn't it, with Union and Disillusion, where you present us as players with a very stark decision, who are you gonna side with? <laughs> and you sort of have you sort of encourage us to double down on that decision is was it classic dming coming to the fore where you you kind of make us commit to a decision and then make that be the wrong decision as it were yeah a little bit i mean that's that's sort of where the 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 title comes from where like no matter no matter what like both of these factions are not 100 percent doing the right thing mm -hmm. so there, there. While there is obviously, there's that one, <laughs> there's that one victory condition you can mm. get here. Most, like ninety nine percent of the time, uh, the campaign will go on, and the only way for it to make sense for it to go on is for whoever, whichever faction you helped to turn out to, uh, whether intentionally or not, be on the wrong side. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you've helped the right side, and then it turns out they were right. Right. Then it would just be over. It's... Right. Yeah. Yeah. And who who wants right. to take the last three scenario packs off? Oh, well, <laughs> yeah. We finished it. Yeah. <laughs> I do like that there's a lodge win possibility here. <laughs> just for the fact that there'll be people on the internet in years to come doing exactly what they've done with the feed liter to Umordoth yep. outcome. They don't yep, won the campaign. Yes. Easy. Speed <laughs> you just had to, you just had to throw that woman into the guy's mouth. It's easy, you know. You just had to side with these slightly morally dubious <laughs> lodge members. It's no problem. Right. Done. You just have to create a new world order. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Like you fine. do. I'm 
yeah, I'm down with that. I have no moral qualms. Yeah, I really, I really like that that's in there as a as a possibility. And I, I think it's important, right? If you've worked really hard to win the lodger's trust, mm-hmm. there needs to be some payoff to that, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's not easy to do. Mm. So, and uh, again, shout out to Arkham 3rd Edition, uh, the board game, because they that there's a scenario in the in the um, base set for that that has a similar lodge win condition and i i definitely fell in love with that when i saw it so i i had to include it here as well i played that that scenario just before i got in the clutches of chaos nice and it even shares art right the carl sanford yeah yeah ma- master of the universe art, whatever, <laughs> whatever it's called yeah just looking evil as can be it's it's a typical man isn't it because uh, there's there's a there's a definite <laughs> masculine energy behind the, the lodge is that we think we know best and we're going to take charge of everything. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Union and Disillusion also includes, they're not core set, set staples, but they are our first cycle staples, Whippoorwills. Yeah. Why did you include them? And <laughs> sort like, of more why? generally, why, yeah, God, how why? dare you? Yeah. <laughs> I thought that an unspoken rule was that we wouldn't revisit cards from that weren't from the encounter sets themselves. Uh, or from the core set and counter sets, rather. So, mm-hmm. yeah, what's what's your policy more generally on like pulling cards in? Uh, so, as far as the whipper wills uh, are concerned, mostly I wanted to include them due to lore reasons and uh, like in the in the IP, it is a common sight on the unvisited isle to see whipper wills and birds in general. Uh, there's kind of like mm. birds all over the place in that scenario, and that's not an accident. Yeah. And uh, as far as why did we revisit those Whippoorwills, it was kind of just, uh, you know, looking at that card, uh, you know, everyone is, everyone kind of love-hated Whippoorwills, right, mm-hmm. in Dawnwich. Yeah. Everyone was like, oh, God, I hate Whippoorwills, but they're also, like, perfect in a way. Um, mm-hmm. And I didn't feel like it would have made sense to, to redo, to do, like, a new Whippoorwill when that Whippoorwill was so iconic and so so reviled. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I I made the decision to just reprint those Whippoorwills along with a lot of other Whippoorwill themed cards from the Dunwich cycle. And in general, our policy has always been, even though it hasn't really happened very often, has always been we will reprint cards if it makes sense. Mm, Yeah. And we've done it a few times with core set cards when it's like, you know, we want Rotting Remains to be in the scenario, but not the rest of the Striking Blood on the Altar. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, Nate uh, expressed uh, very early on in in the design for Arkham that he wanted to see more reprints more often, not like super duper often, but like every now and then, like maybe once per cycle, we would see some reprints show up because it creates a sort of narrative uh, like through line where you're you're seeing Whippoorwills again and you recognize them. It's the same Whippoorwills and you're like, ah, Whippoorwills, you know what I mean? Like, I, I remember these. And I think this emotional reaction that, that, you know, the community got when they saw the Whippoorwills are back is exactly the reason why it's a good thing. If you see Whippoorwills again and they're totally different, it's like, are they even Whippoorwills, you know? It sets up for you a chance of really then messing with the player as well. Like, we saw rats again. Mm -hmm. We thought we knew how to deal with rats. (laughs) We didn't know how to deal with rats. And then you see Whippoorwills and you think, well, what's going to be different here? Are they going to, they're going to mess us up in some way? But they're just whippoorwills. Right, so yeah. there's a kind of little little double take there. But again, what's cool about the whippoorwills here is they do take on a slightly different light because you have these uh, 
braziers that you're trying to lit uh, to light, and mm-hmm. they make you test multiple stats. And if you're yes. if there's a whipper at your location, it just becomes that much harder to do it. Yeah, it's hitting you twice, isn't it? Yeah, twice or even twice. four times, depending on which uh, which one you're trying to light or unlight, as mm. it were. Interestingly, the, the the Ace of Rods is the flip of that as well, isn't it? Right. Yeah. 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 It's it's a great card to have in your back pocket when you come for that final that final uh, brazier. Oh yeah, it's huge. I noticed weirdly that there mechanically there's there's not really a difference between lighting and unlighting the braziers, is there? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, it's, yeah. it's another sneaky uh, game game designer trick, like as being wrong with whoever we, we we supported, gives it a slightly different feel, even if it's mechanically it's the same across what you're doing. Yeah, that was it was more of a narrative consideration than a mechanical one. Where I think originally, I'm trying to remember exactly how it came about, but it might have been a thing where originally you were just doing the lighting, but it didn't make sense for. Uh, if you were trying to stop the ritual for you to be doing that. Yeah. Um, so it, it was a kind of a simple thing to just make make it say light or unlight. It was, a, like I said, more of a narrative thing than anything else. The side effect is, of course, that uh, Grafina can run around undoing all the work you've done <laughs> to make your life more difficult. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That would be really funny. <laughs> so from the Unvisited Isle, we head back into Arkham proper for mm-hmm. In the Clutches of Chaos. This is pretty much Pandemic or Arkham Horror 3, but in <laughs> Arkham Horror LCG form. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, it's definitely got that, that feeling of like trying to run around from location to location and keep things under control, you know? It can definitely... We found in playing this, it can swing quite quickly from being under control and then yes. a round of encounter cards, suddenly things that really out of control and you've got to prioritize what it is you're going to go and deal with with what you can actually deal with in that turn yeah it definitely can probably more so than than most scenarios just due to the nature of the the spreading breaches and the doom you know like spiraling out of control if it starts getting bad it starts getting real bad yeah Mm. it it replicated that pandemic feel for me really (laughs) well i must admit i haven't played arkham horror third edition but i believe that's got a similar mechanic yeah yeah the doom spreading in, in arkham yeah, and it was definitely a little bit inspired by Arkham Third because uh, it just made sense to uh, it. It kind of made sense to recreate that same feeling here, where uh, chaos has been unleashed, and now you're trying to sort of put the put the genie back in the bottle, as it were, right? Mm, yeah, it's funny because it, this scenario almost becomes its own separate mini game. Yeah, where you're yeah. almost you're playing like a different game, even though you're still playing Arkham. I've seen some players say, "Well, I'm playing." Arkham Pandemic tonight <laughs> because they mean they're playing in Clutches of Chaos. How do you feel about how it's sort of landed? Like, are you happy with it being a, almost a different game? Yeah, yeah, I am. I, I think it's always been my goal to make each scenario feel like you can kind of describe that scenario in one sentence and they're all, all every sentence is different, right? I think I've mentioned that a, a few times before in like interviews yeah, and yeah. that uh, that's exactly the case here, right? Like, it's it's a it's a different style of scenario. It's one that that you haven't played before and um in the end that's what's going to be memorable about it you know Mm. i want to make sure that at the end of every cycle every scenario feels memorable in some way yeah and i think the challenge for in the clutches of chaos is that what people compare it to immediately are two other well-known games (laughs) rather than saying like oh it's the train scenario or oh it's the 
you know the one in Paris or whatever it is. Right. They're like they're companions of things like that. I'm not, I'm not saying that critically, by the way, because I love this scenario. Um, my experience, I played it recently with some friends, and someone said, "Oh, I've never won it," and I was like, "Oh, really?" He said, "Yeah, yeah just." Somehow the doom spirals out of control, and we went from one doom to doom down oh, in one in one mythos. <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, that's what you meant by spirals out of control." Okay, yeah, just you know the the perfect draw of encounter cards. You'll just think, "Oh, another, another turn, what make a difference?" Just going to sort out or you know get enough resources for this last card I need or whatever, and then suddenly, yeah, I'll, I'll, we'll prioritize that three breach location. Yeah. Don't worry about the two breach location for now, <laughs> and then comes back to haunt you we haven't really so far talked too much about interludes like we haven't talked about the inner sanctum Mm. and i think that's partly because i want players to experience it themselves and i've heard you talking about that elsewhere Mm -hmm. one of the things that really struck me of the the resolutions to in the clutches of chaos was that investigator traits mattered (laughs) and i'm pretty sure it's the first time they've mattered in the game and i for one was delighted by it if you're a detective you can do one thing. And if you're a sorceress, you can do something else. Mm. How did that come about? Mainly the first one. I I really loved the idea of, uh, like, I had this vision in my head of arresting Carl Sanford, and I I thought it was such a cool moment that I wanted to put it in, but it didn't make sense for just anyone to do it, right? Like, Mm, it, it wouldn't make sense for, like, Agnes Baker to arrest Carl Sanford. It's like, what? So... I decided to do it based on traits, but then as soon as I did that, it was like, okay, well, you know, I can't just give this cool story beat to one group of investigators. I have to at least have a couple more, and that's where the rest of them came from. So, like, you can you can arrest Carl Sanford or Annette Mason, but you can also do a couple other things depending on what traits you have. Uh, and I, I would have included even more if I'd had space, but obviously space is mm. a premium. Well, I hope it's something you revisit in future because I, I think it adds that extra layer of immersion. Mm-hmm. You know, if I play through as Roland, I can aim for that in the way that I can't as Wendy or Jim or whatever else. Yeah, I, I, I've always wanted people to feel like they are playing these characters. And uh, while your deck can definitely represent that, having more things show up in the narrative that key off of who you are mm. is also going to be a really good way of making you connect with your character. Um, so I'm glad that that landed well because I'd like to do more of that in the future for sure. Great. So in Clutches of Chaos, we had this almost mini game of of figuring out where breaches are going to happen and responding to that. And then in Before the Black Throne, we almost have another mini game or meta game where you're trying to maneuver the locations mm-hmm. around the board, and it really gives this extra dimensional feel to to what you're doing, where your your movement matters, but well, it, what it serves to do is set it apart from the other kind of extra dimensional final scenarios. <laughs> uh, is this something you, you're constantly having to think of new ways to make this place seem alien and weird? Yeah, a little bit. Um, and there are kind of different themes at work here. Like with Lost in Time and Space, it was very much about being lost. So there were like it was all everything was connected through location connection icons. But it was connected in kind of these weird ways that, uh, you know, not all of it was uh, two-way connections. And sometimes it was, you know, you'd, you'd pull a new location and you'd have to really think, like, okay, how do I get here? You know, like, what is this connected to? And that was on purpose because we wanted you to feel a little lost. But with, um, with Before the Black Throne, that wasn't really the case. It, 
we didn't really want you to feel lost so much as we wanted you to feel like you were in this this vast this like infinitely vast cosmic space and the best way to do that i felt was to just have the the space laid out before you and feel like there's only a couple locations out at the start and you have to get from here to here and there's nothing in between them you know what i mean mm, yeah so it it was kind of designed to get you to feel like you're in this empty place um almost like a house of leaves-esque like alternate world you know that's that's an in- interesting comment <laughs> i think the book i'm reading right <laughs> now. Reading oh really yeah. oh my god yeah. it's so good it is really it's good so good. we have to talk about it later okay okay yeah. <laughs> what i what i really like in this scenario is that there are entities that can navigate those vast spaces more quickly mm. than we as investigators can yeah i think that's quite a terrifying feeling it's you know like a hunter enemy that hunts twice it's like uh-oh our normal ways of dealing with enemies aren't going to cut it here yeah not only that but they can travel through locations that we can't even travel through yeah you know? yeah they're just like closing the space yeah they feel more dangerous when well, I mean, they are more dangerous when the, the map <laughs> is unexplored. And yet that's yes, the time yeah. they're most likely to appear. <laughs> uh, because, you know, it, it, quite often you'll... you'll So say when you're playing The Gathering, you know that any enemies in the study are going to vanish uh, when you move through into the hall. Mm-hmm. There's a temptation when you know the map's going to change. It's like, right, well, we'll just run away from these last few enemies. But here you just, in fact, attacking attacking them a little bit and then going on is the worst thing you can do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And actually, speaking of those enemies, they definitely seem... Uh, I don't know. I, I feel like through this, this cycle, there has been some big enemies that are bigger than enemies we've seen before. Mm-hmm. Are players getting better at dealing with big enemies? And you've, you've upped the difficulty in response to that? I think a little bit, but that wasn't necessarily the the reason why. In this scenario in particular, there's like the mindless dancers that are really big, um, Mm -hmm. and obviously the piper. But um, Mm -hmm. really, aside from that, there's not much. Like the acolytes and the wizards are pretty pretty easy, all told. So they keep killing themselves, which makes your job easier. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's just uh, there's not actually like the density of enemies in that scenario is pretty low. Yeah, especially big, you know, monster enemies. So I, I made the mindless dancers pretty hefty for that reason, where like, you know, these are the these are your main threats really, and you, there's not even really a boss fight. Like you're not really fighting Azathoth; he's just kind of mm. there, being yeah. him. Yeah, it's fighting you. Yeah, yeah. Like, let's not forget that. <laughs> yeah, you feel that when that happens. Yeah, for sure. As far as the rest of the cycle, I would say I think overall the enemies have stayed mostly consistent with other uh, campaigns. The one major difference really is that there's a lot more enemies in this cycle that are persistent uh, because that, again, plays into the themes of the cycle of inevitability and fate and, you know, that things are cyclical. And so there's a lot more enemies that you can't really ever deal with. There's like the Spectral Watcher who, when you when you uh, defeat it, it just exhausts and then gets back up in a turn or two. There's yeah. Nahab and Brown Jenkin who you can defeat, but they'll, they're going to come back. So yeah, there's, there's wraiths attaching yeah, to yeah, location. Yeah, yeah, there's wraiths yeah. that become haunted effects. Uh, so there's a lot more enemies like that that uh, are sort of recurring. I guess maybe if, if you rely on other tricks to deal with enemies, uh, the fact that these big enemies keep coming back uh, makes them harder to deal with in the, in the long run. 
Right. Yeah. And it does sort of encourage you to take uh, different play styles as well. Like if you're Rita, you're maybe just evading enemies uh, the whole time. You're, you're maybe just evading mindless dancers and not even dealing with them. If you're, um, if you're someone like Wendy, you might waylay a monster instead of going through the effort of defeating it. And it kind of helps to encourage that a little bit. It's nice as well, because if you're the Guardian and you're packing the huge weapon... Mm-hmm. you feel like it's worth it for these big enemies oh yeah yeah, like, yeah okay my four damage hit is you know i need five damage i need seven damage this is great yeah and if you're not the guardian then you've got these other tricks or ways of dealing with enemies or evasion and they suddenly come to the fore as well yeah like you mentioned the the, the dancer the mindless dancer and it's got like six fight and on the one hand that's basically saying if you don't have a weapon you're you're not even bothering to attack it, right? Like, there's no way. But what it does is it sort of justifies those high-level purchases. Yeah. Where if, yeah. if you have a lightning gun, all of a sudden it's like, yeah, I, I needed it. <laughs> I needed it to even hit this thing, you know? Mm. C- coming into this scenario with a four-player group, I was the only one who'd played it already. Mm-hmm. And I was playing Diana, and my role was mainly fighting. And I was thinking long and hard about, like, I don't want to let the team down, but there are some enemies that I'm going to really struggle with. <laughs> and we had, we had a Joe in that group who was still using machete. So it's like, that's not going to cut it. Yep. <laughs> and we had, and we had Rita. So I was sitting next to the Rita player. And I was like, look, like if you can just cover for me on the small things, I'm just going to get set up. And I didn't tell him why. I was <laughs> like, I just need to be ready just because like when those enemies come out, other people just can't do anything to them. Yeah. It's brutal. It, yeah. I, we absolutely felt like that. I remember the first time we played it and then we'd left all three. Uh, we just got away from all of them. Uh, Preston <laughs> was just evading them. Uh, and then they all came out in the last, in the last section of the, the, the scenario. I'm glad you mentioned that, Peter. So is this the first scenario in four cycles of the game where you're penalized for advancing the act uh it mm, well aside from scenarios where like you know advancing the act causes a particular boss to appear mm, like you know yeah. the ghoul priest in in the gathering yeah, like the is like priest. yeah that, that's yeah. gonna co- come out but uh yeah aside from that maybe i think it might be yeah yeah it feels like whichever like and maybe this just ties into the inexorability of it all. It feels like if the agenda's advancing or the actors advancing in before the Black Throne, you're in for a rough time. Yeah, I think the main reason why that came about is because when the act advances, you're switching maps, and so many encounter cards can get lost in that. Um, that it's sort of the the encounter deck's way of of hitting back when that happens. Like. All right, you lost the two mindless dancers that were out, and like an acolyte, and uh, you know maybe another card that was attached to a location or something. So mm. here's here's something to compensate for that because otherwise events in the act is maybe too good. Like it's you know it's like a yeah. reset button, but it's not resetting mm. you. It's just resetting the the you know all the bad guys. <laughs> it feels really rewarding to do that thing of get to the place you need to get the right clues and then wait for a mythos and then advance because you know you're going to get hit by another Mm -hmm. tranche of cards like that sort of good practice of advancing early in your turn so you can respond is never been more fitting than when you're before the black throne Mm. yeah um how satisfying was it to write the end of all things (laughs) uh it was you know kind of depressing actually (laughs) 
hence hence my in my design notes where i just started off with like wow that's, that that was pretty dark <laughs> yeah uh but you know it, it, i i really liked how it, it turned out i think that the the themes of the cycle really shone through in the in the different endings and the epilogues and yeah i i i'm just i'm very happy with the the ending it does feel like you presented blairs with a properly challenging moral choice like you fought hard to get to the end mm-hmm. and then you're made to make a quite tough decision which i suppose is one of the themes as well yeah yeah around there are no easy answers there are no easy exits yeah and in fact some choices you made you know seven scenarios ago uh have an impact now yeah i i really liked pulling back uh and like kind of ending the cycle where it began with that that original terror reading and having that sort of come back to, to, well, haunt you or help you, depending on whether you thought mm. that that ending's good or not. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, ultimately, uh, you know, like with many Lovecraft stories, there's a, there's not a, a very particularly happy ending here. We, we definitely can succeed and we can alter the, the future, but uh, only, we can only do so much. I mean, but there is a happy ending here for you, Matt, because you've delivered a fantastic <laughs> campaign oh, thank you. that completely nails that. So, Yay. yeah, I just <laughs> want to be on record at least saying, like, this campaign, it feels so tightly done. It feels so immersive. I've loved all of my playthroughs of it. I'm already looking forward to playing through it again. So, yeah, it's been... It's weird, isn't it? The The darkest material, and it seems to be the most enjoyable. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's the same for me as well. I think you've it's it's been very consistently good this cycle as well. Uh, we've got we've obviously got some high points, but all the way through there hasn't been a there hasn't been a duff scenario in it, and I think it's really nailed some of those influences. Maybe, maybe you had in mind. I, I know Blair Witch is one of the ones that came to mind for me. Yeah, uh, and and the Crucible as well. This idea oh, of yeah. really the the decrepit, <laughs> decaying New England town. And this history of, of blood of the, uh, and witches. The Crucible is really my good. favorite uh, play of all time, by the way. Well, it's definitely come across. There's that feel <laughs> of feel of the old, the, the kind of you can almost. I love the film. Is the, the I've never seen the play. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's probably more popular in American theaters. But um, I was in the play at university. Oh, really? I was in the play yeah. in high school. Snap! Wait, That's who great. did you play? I played the, I can't remember his name, the pastor who turns up to kind of help. The Pat, the Reverend Hale? Yeah. Oh my God, so did I. That's hilarious. Awesome, man. Yeah, yeah, he's Reverend my favorite Hale. character. Yeah. Oh man, yeah. that's awesome. The best I did was Bugsy Malone. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong cycle, Peter. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, thank you for, for your kind words. Yeah, I, I really like how this uh, cycle turned out and i hope everyone else liked it as well yeah and i i'm also sorry that we don't have more time to like dive into say individual encounter cards because you mentioned earlier the witchcraft set Mm. and one of the things that's happened between me and peter behind the scenes we've often sent each other pictures of encounter cards like fatal fools (laughs) and said like look look who's the fool now you know Particularly when you have your play area where your threat area is as busy as your play area. <laughs> You've got, you know, like four treacheries and two assets or something like that. Nice. It's been really satisfying <laughs> to have all of these different cards that 
either hang around waiting for something bad to happen or give you this sense of impending doom. Like this has really been the Alter Fate campaign. Yeah. And I've loved playing Alter Fate <laughs> this campaign. It's been so good. Yeah. Funny that you bring up Alter Fate because that was kind of the my what's the word? Like preview, I guess, into yeah. into the Circle Undone at the very end of Forgotten Age. I like to kinda I like to kinda have a card that, you know, that previews what's to come. Um, and mm, in this case, yeah. it was the the entire bonded mechanic, right? Yeah. <laughs> but Alter Fate was kind of the perfect segue into the Circle Undone, especially when there are cards that you can alter, and then there are cards that you can't. Like you can't alter Fate the Tower, for example, which is like just mm. by itself that sends a, like the perfect message of like, yeah, there are some things that are inevitable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Alter Fate is obviously my my favorite card to use this cycle i think because it feels like you're fighting back against the forces of inexorableness yeah i think yeah. especially uh, i know i've been running more characters that don't necessarily pass all their tests if you're playing with preston for instance uh and i've been playing through a different campaign with skids recently and to an extent mm-hmm. you, you pick and choose it's like playing on a high difficulty you've got to be more selective about where you invest your resources but i think there's there's other encounter cards which give you interesting decisions to make rather than just do you pass or not pass the test all these ones that attach to an agenda and then sit there (laughs) waiting for something horrible to happen i like that yeah i like Mm. i like the cards that don't do anything at first yeah 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 the first fate of all fools is a gimme it's like the best mythos phase ah yeah (laughs) cool all right that's not that bad yeah (laughs) and then uh, terror in the night is another favorite of mine yeah 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 just sitting there threatening but not really doing <laughs> and like anything. frank says all those the witchcraft ones where you just wait for a, a witch to to prop crop up so you can beat her up and force it to take all these hexes <laughs> off you <laughs> yeah please remove this <laughs> you mentioned bonded was your little nod for the next cycle mm-hmm. which is the dream eaters which might even be out by the time this episode goes live yeah can we talk a little bit about Dream Eaters yeah, before yeah. before we finish up? For sure. This is our classic question for you. What's on your mood board for the Dream Eaters? So the Dream Eaters couldn't be more different from the Circle Undone, I think. It's like bubblegum pink and happy. <laughs> well, all right, maybe not that. <laughs> Dream Pop. Like it's still yeah. Lovecraft. It's still you know it's still yeah. going to be Arkham. But um, really, the Dreamlands cycle of uh, narrative that. Lovecraft wrote is so tonally different from a lot of his other works. I mean, you have, you have like talking cats and like weird, like creatures that aren't necessarily scary, but are kind of just like cool and fantastical. You have places that are kind of really happy and uplifting in a way, but almost sad in that like they're not real or they're hard to get to. And like most of humanity won't ever see them. You have a character in Randolph Carter, who's easily like the most competent of any character he's ever written. So Mm, it's a very different tone. Uh, It's, it's a lot more hopeful and it's a lot more fantastical and weird, really just strange than, uh, than anything else that he's written. So I I kind of hoped to take the LCG in that direction as well and have a more, maybe a more whimsical adventure, at least for the investigators who, who venture into the dreamlands. And then for the, I mean, you, you've got a 
a cycle of cat allies in the Lux yeah. Box that. So that's definitely that's side, <laughs> siding on the whimsy right. <laughs> already. But then for the investigators who stay behind, for the investigators who do that the B campaign, it's a bit more what you're used to. It's a bit more traditional Arkham, a lot more horrifying and a lot more in your face scary. And I kind of like having that dichotomy because then when the two groups get together like not the two groups the characters but the two like the the groups of players who are playing the a campaign and the b campaign they can be like whoa wait what happened in your campaign oh geez this is what happened in our campaign it's crazy you know we were hanging out with cats yeah exactly yeah yeah (laughs) so for people who don't know can you maybe explain and this will be moot (laughs) <laughs> this uh, episode comes out after the, the the box comes out but can you explain a bit how the a and b campaigns work and what we can maybe look forward to with that? sure uh so basically when you when you open up the dream eaters you're presented uh, in the prologue with three options you can either play the a campaign by itself as a four scenario campaign or the b campaign by itself as a four scenario campaign or you can play both the a and b campaigns together as eight interconnected scenarios like you're used to but you're jumping back and forth between the two and you don't even have to go in order like you don't have to do a and then b and then a and then b you can kind of you can kind of flip-flop in, in different ways which is and kind would of you cool. do those with two sets of investigators or the same people going back and no forth? so it's two different groups of investigators so you would have to build two wow. decks so let's say like let's say you two were playing together you would actually build four decks uh, you would each build wow. two different investigators, and then you would decide, all right, which investigators entering the Dreamlands and which investigators are staying behind. And you can even decide randomly, which is kind of cool, Wow. so that you're, you're not really sure what the group's going to shake out to be, uh, which is really fun in, in multiplayer when you have like four people and you have eight decks and you're just deciding randomly. And there's also an entire sidebar, and this is like one of my favorite parts, there's a whole sidebar describing how you might play this campaign if you were, let's say... The two of you were playing, and you wanted Frank is going to play the A campaign, and Peter's going to play the B campaign, and you're not going to talk to each other until the campaign tells you that you are allowed to. Ooh, wow. There's, there's a whole way that you can play it that way, which is a pretty fun blind run through the campaign, I, I think. But is obviously a little trickier because you have to wait for the, you know, the appropriate packs to come out, so you're only playing every couple months. Yeah, so is it, it's alternate packs, I guess between the the real world and the yeah it's gonna it's gonna alternate so pack one is is in the a campaign and pack two is in the b campaign and so on and so forth and there's one a and one b in the deluxe yes yes yeah that's what i thought yep this is fantastic matt it's so cool that you're shaking up the two plus six format mm-hmm. which we've had for four cycles not that there was anything wrong with that format but just it's great to have other formats provided and I think I saw you answer some of that about playing with separate groups, maybe on Reddit. Yeah, yep, on Reddit. yep. I had three separate people screen grab that answer. <laughs> and, and I think it's had such an impact across the community of people feeling excited about the idea that I can play, you know, Peter's in Edinburgh. We can have this campaign experience together completely separately or with an American friend, they can set off down the B path and I'll do the A and we'll swap notes when it tells us. It's such an exciting way of having <laughs> some kind of a play experience with people that, that are far away. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's really cool that you're adding it. Yeah, we, we even play tested it uh, that way as well. And uh, so what's cool about it is after... The, basically, there's an interlude after each 
pair of scenarios, right? So after 1A and 1B, there's an interlude. Then after 2A and 2B, there's another interlude. And those interludes, if you're playing in that style, you would you would kind of get together and play that interlude. Well, not play the interlude, but like resolve that interlude yeah. uh, at the same time. So you kind of get a window into what the other group is doing. But you don't get the full picture until you go through and then yeah. play the other side, which is, wow. yeah. It's almost like the labyrinths, isn't it? About the paradox effects in the labyrinths. A little bit, yeah, yeah. It's also kind of like if you've played Resident Evil 2 and there's like the Leon oh, yeah, A and yeah. Claire A and then Leon B and Claire B. It's kind of like that as well, which I think is really cool. Or like I'm trying to think of another... And then you, well, what I like about that is always when you do the second story... <laughs> you understand the relevance of what's happening to a character. Yes, yeah, yeah. You're like, ah, that's why they were doing this. Yeah, and when you go back and you play through as uh, as the other campaign, it's like, okay, I, I get it all now. It makes sense. Yeah. That being said, I want to just mention that it's also, like, really fun to just play through the eight scenarios interconnected yourself uh, as, as, a, as a solo player or as a group of players. Mm-hmm. Like, don't feel like you have to go out and grab some stranger to get the full experience that's not that's not necessarily the case there's more just like this added cool thing that we decided to do i feel like keen players of the game will want to be playing every pack as it comes out mm-hmm. so they'll probably be doing that but i also know that listeners to this cast want to pair up and they can do it online so we can you know i could have a two solo campaigns one <laughs> where i'm an a and one where i'm the b and have two separate solo buddies doing it wherever they are nice. in France nice. and Sweden. That's awesome. You know, yeah. it's really cool as a way of <laughs> connecting with other solo players as well. Well, we need to think about how we're going to do it, Frank, whether we do two playthroughs at the same time. One of us is in the dreamland, the other one's in reality. Yeah, maybe you'll only be one of my playthroughs, Peter, and there'll be someone else. Oh. <laughs> another one. Sorry to let you know on Slap air. In the face. <laughs> Sorry, Matt, just jumping back a little mm-hmm. bit. If you're going to pick some books or some films uh, or anything uh, to recommend to people just to get them in the mood for the cycle, mm-hmm. uh, what would what would you pick? Well, as far as reading material, the best thing to read would probably be the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, which is the probably the most well-known of Lovecraft's Dreamlands uh, cycle of writing. It introduces it basically introduces everything that you need to know about the Dreamlands. It introduces Randolph Carter. It introduces um, a lot of the concepts that are going to be explored in the cycle. Mm-hmm. A- after that, let's see, as far as films, I mean, honestly, I think that's where like the majority of the inspiration for the, for the cycle takes place. But anything that deals with dreams will probably help as well to get you into the mood. Will this scenario, this campaign rather, have point where you wake up and it was all a dream <laughs> <laughs> uh, i don't know you'll have to watch or you'll have to uh play to find out okay. <laughs> cardinal sin of creative writing the whole yeah. actually the the whole cycle is going to be a dream you're going to like yeah. wake up at the end of it and like all your cards are going to be removed from your collection <laughs> it didn't <exist. laughs> yeah none of them ever existed <laughs> you're going to go online and be like Hey guys, I, I can't find uh, Luke on Arkham DB anymore. What happened? <laughs> yeah. Luke, what are you talking about? <laughs> it was all a dream. Cool. Well, Peter, do you have any more questions? I've got a bunch of questions about the upcoming cycle. I guess we're doing it. We're doing this interview later after the cycle ends than we have in the past. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we're closer to the release of the new cycle. Right. So we actually know quite a bit about it now. We know all the investigators. 
some people know all the investigators' deck building requirements. Yep. Yeah. I don't know. Just uh, is there anything you're particularly excited about in terms of the investigators and the player cards that are coming that you can share? Yeah, definitely. I, I'm really happy with all of these investigators in this in this next cycle. Um, they all kind of have new play styles. They're, they're all exploring new territory that that um, uh, or territory that has been explored before, but now we're seeing them really come to, come to fruition. Like Tommy is sort of like the the archetypical paladin or tank uh, character, and uh, so many of his cards are gonna deal with playing in multiplayer and like protecting everyone, which is a lot of fun. As sort of that power fantasy of like I'm gonna stand in the way and be the shield for everyone, and it's a lot of fun to mm-hmm. play. With with Luke, we're getting the the event heavy mystic, like I mentioned earlier. So many cards with Luke take on a on a different feel altogether. Uh, and oh yeah, yeah, card you might absolutely have... like anything that attaches to a location uh, is is suddenly very different with Luke because he can attach it to yeah. a connecting location. And I know people have um, maybe looked. Uh, cards like uh, Blinding Light, maybe, uh, but now, sure. like, yes. great, you know, evade any enemy at any location connected to you and deal it free damage without <laughs> having to engage yep. or do any of that other stuff. Yeah, it, it's so much fun to like hop in a little portal and you know do a card that like across the map <laughs> to save an ally, and you're like, and they're like, whoa, I didn't even think you could do that. It's it's really fun, and then uh, with Mandy. Just uh, doing the the search effects, uh, she becomes a really powerful support investigator, but also a really powerful combo investigator, where you can find all of the pieces of the combo that you're looking for and assemble them very quickly. But you can also just help everyone else get their, you know, rig, for lack of a better word, together very quickly. Yeah, I, like I said, I, I'm I'm really in love with all of the investigators in this cycle. I think they're all going to be very, very well liked. I'm super and very excited popular. for Patrice. Yes, yes. Patrice is also very, very powerful and yeah. a lot of fun to play. Just always having options available to you at any moment is is always fun in any card game. It's very empowering to be like, well, you know, this hand didn't work out. Let me yeah. just get a brand and, new And she hand. feels very... <laughs> uh, we talked about Kulapai earlier. She feels very heavily Survivor as well. I, I always liked uh, characters and, and strategies, mm-hmm. strategies in games where I can plan turn to turn rather than having to think over a longer period of time. Uh, because I haven't got a very big brain. Uh, so, mm-hmm. Patrice, I get a new five cards every turn, and I think, right, what, what, how do I use these best in this situation that I'm in? Mm-hmm. Yeah, making making the most of what you have is definitely a survivor theme, so it, it fit perfectly into that. Well, that was the only other question I wanted to ask, uh, Frank. Do you, do you have anything else you wanted to ask, Matt? No, I'm so excited for Dream Eaters. It's going to be great. Nice. And just wanted to say... Thank you again for joining us on the podcast and for taking the time out to support us. Of course, and anytime. I know that our listeners are going to be super excited to hear from you. Uh, it's probably what we get asked about the most. Are you going to be interviewing Matt? No. <laughs> <laughs> trying our best. I'm not that important, so, yeah. guys. <laughs> it's cool. We really appreciate it. Yeah. I'm also um, really excited for Arkham Knights, which is upcoming a couple weeks. That's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, that should be really good. Yes. Uh, will people be playing Blob at Arkham Knight? Yes, there will be. There will be some Blob. There will be uh, what else? Uh, our well, our usual sort of costume contest. Um, Arkham Third Edition. There's going to be some play with the developers for that, and uh, I might also have another thing up my sleeve. Ooh. Oh. We'll see. 
to the airport, Peter. <laughs> cool. Uh, just before we go, I know uh, we've got Arkham Knights to look forward to in the US. There are some Arkham Knights uh, Europe and UK dates, either announced or, or incoming. So check out, I think they're probably on the Facebook uh, page for the, the relevant groups, I'm sure. Someone had posted in the Facebook group with a with an official Facebook post from FFG about those dates. And Frank and I are doing two events at Tabletop Gaming Live at Alexand- Alexandra Palace. Correct. I'm, I'm a northerner, so I don't understand these London places. <laughs> Ali Pali. <laughs> Say Ali Pali. Ali Pali, yeah. yeah, that's, I, yeah. I, I know that. I've actually seen an ice hockey game there years oh, ago. Okay. Uh, anyway, yeah, we're doing two events. There's plenty of tickets left. So check out the website for those. There's a there's a link on our Facebook page. We're doing Labyrinth of Lunacy on Saturday, Saturday afternoon. And then we're doing the Depths of Yoth Challenge on Sunday, uh, nice. which have both been very popular in the past. Yeah, great fun. That's so awesome. yeah, uh, drop us a message or go on the relevant websites and you can find the tickets for that. You can drop us a message with drawn to the flame podcast at gmail.com. We're also drawn to the flame on Facebook and Twitter, so you can reach us there. We're drawn to the flame on designed by humans and patreon as well if you want to check us out there this episode has gone pretty long so i think we'll <laughs> sign off there if that's all right sorry about that just to say <laughs> no, no, no no nothing to apologize for. <laughs> very grateful uh thank you very much for listening thank you thanks everyone a nice introduction so um hey kitty sorry my my cat is being very loud (laughs) (laughs) oops sorry hold on my cat just knocked over my tower of of uh empty glasses kitty go away stop it Anyway, this um, is all gold. It's yeah, all yeah, yeah. All of it stays. <laughs> yeah.